0: We are uh, continuing our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, and we see as we understand them, if we understand them as I believe God intended us, that they're not just a list of religious rules uh, or some way to keep God happy or somehow earn God's blessing, but they are rooted in his... Uh, redeeming work, that God redeemed a people, and he gave them this way of life. He gave them this beautiful law so that they could live a certain way, that they could live this new way of life, essentially heaven on earth, that God was recreating a a goodness and a rightness of life that had been previously broken in sin, and as he is redeeming and giving them this way, um, they they can live it, and this is a description of that. So rather than limit us, These laws actually free us to live as God intended. So today, we see in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol. I'm going to use the word idol primarily. Um, Don't make it. Don't worship it. Why? Because God says, I want you to worship me and all of who I am. Now, this... Command seems very similar to last week. The first command was you shall have no other gods before me. And the second command is no idols. So basically no representation of a god. Such that if you break the second commandment, you seem to have already broken the first one. If you're worshipping an image of a god, then you're worshipping something less than god. And then you're, you're worshipping some other god. Um... Uh, the, the, the distinction that we'll make between these two is if the first commandment is worship nothing other than God, the second command is worship nothing less than God. If you're worshiping something less than God, you're not fully worshiping God. Here's the thing, though, with idols and idol worship. Most of us worship some sort of idol. And we'll look at that. The great reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We're just really good at um, making idols in our lives. And so I want to take a look today at a very famous incident of idol worship, the, the golden calf incident. In the book of Exodus, and then I want to consider two reasons why this type of idol worship really is dangerous, and why it draws us away from true worship as God intended. So, we're going to do that today. So that take a look at the story, and then these two reasons. But I brought a couple things. We found this um, just as a just to think about this idea. We found this in Mandy's office recently. It's and I don't know at home on the camera if you can see that, but that we assume that this is supposed to be Jesus. And it's a little, it's a cute little figurine. So it's sort of a carved or graven image, perhaps. And it's got a hole. So I think it's a pencil topper. And when I found it, I said, please don't let that be an eraser. Like that, that just, I just, something as much as I, just please know." So we're going to come back to him maybe later. I'll leave it there. We found this in my office. So this is also a depiction of Jesus here in the center. And this is a famous work of art called All Saints so it seems of the holy people around Jesus and this is actually an icon it's a, it's a certified icon because it has a sticker on it and it was um, so it was it's, it's uh, we'll talk about that more later too okay so we get these two depictions of Jesus that will help us perhaps <laughs> let's pray Father we, uh, we do worship you there's joy and being together in worshiping you through song. Uh, as you prompt us in our prayer, uh, your goodness is just known, and you are worthy of every bit of our worship, and yet we confess we fall short of that. So we just pray that you would use this time to teach us, to refine us, to um, show us what you want to show us. You're, um, in your goodness, you, you do this for us, and we, we know that you're here. We know that you're active, Lord, and we just desire more of it. So be glorified in this time, Lord, to use it as you will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's consider this this account of the, the golden calf. Here's a group of people who God has rescued from, they were living in slavery. God has rescued them. He's given them the Ten Commandments. The people said together, they said, We will do everything that the Lord commands. Um, including the Ten Commandments, which they had been given. So then God calls Moses uh, up the mountain, and Moses is up there for some time. And then in verse 1, the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Because Moses had said, if you have any problems, you go to Aaron. So they go to Aaron, and they said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So Aaron says, okay, give me all your earrings. And he takes it and he fashions it with some sort of tool and overlays it or forms it into this young bull or a calf as we translate that. And this young bull represents the God who brought them out of Egypt. And he said, here it is. And then tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord. So we, we understand that he's not trying to form some other God or some other thing that their intent was to worship the God of Israel, the God who did deliver them, and this was some sort of representation of that God, not some other God. The problem is, it is a really poor representation of God. Uh, Jen Wilkins' book, Ten Words to Live By, where we get the title for this sermon series, she describes it like this, about the golden calf. It is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location-bound, but God is everywhere fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees, hears, and speaks. This is a This is a very much inadequate, improper representation of God. God is angry. Moses sees what's happened. He takes the tablets of the law and smashes them down, just representing the breaking of this covenant uh, that the people had done in this act. And it's a huge mess. Huge mess. Aaron then realizes the harm he's done, of course starts making excuses. Verse 22 says, Do not be angry, my lord, he says to To Moses, you know how prone these people are to evil. And they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) There's four excuses. You know the people are evil. It's their fault. They pressured me to do this you were gone so long where were you moses your fault and then and then this calf <laughs> it's a ridiculous scene and and really the whole notion of idol worship just seems so ridiculous and silly like something that you made with your hands you're going to worship it as if it is a, a god or the god or it's 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 silly yet at the same time the process itself we can understand it is very difficult and very hard to worship something that's invisible, to be connected to that which can't be grasped or held, that is just spirit. Um, In the image, when when, whatever the religious practice, wherever there's an image, it is to remind us of God or of the God. And, And you look at it, it would focus your thoughts and your prayers. And little by little, though, you could see how, when you're used to looking at it or something more tangible becomes a thing, and slowly the progression is that it replaces the God that it's meant to represent. For us today, it is still very challenging to worship an invisible God. Um, It's easy for us to get focused on material things because we live in a material world. But here the command and the instruction that goes with it is that idols are very dangerous. Do not make them. Do not worship them. And the consequences of this false worship are severe for generations. Just as faith and love of God can be passed from generation to generation, from parents to their children, even to grandchildren. And we see legacies of faith and love of God in families. In the same way that hatred of God and false worship gets taught from one generation to the next. And so on and on until that cycle is broken. The point here is that God wants us to avoid all of that false worship and he wants us to worship him fully. He's the God who made us. He is perfection and holy and and sovereign and powerful. he's, he's, He's everything and he wants our proper worship. So what does proper worship look like? And it, it brings me to a story. Jesus kind of summarized this when he, in a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman, from John, the Gospel of John chapter 4. This woman said, Our fathers, she's asking Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus responded this. He said, A time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So true worship is both in spirit and it's in truth. And it's those two things that are key here. And that's why idol worship, drags us away from those things for two reasons. The first is this. If God is spirit, then anything physical is less than God. And then you can't have true worship. Jesus said true worship isn't on this mountain or that mountain. It's a spiritual experience. It's not tied to a mountain or a building or a location or even a religious person, an ordained leader, one day of the week. Worship can be everywhere. Because it's not physical, it's not limited, it is spiritual. When we start to tie our worship to people or places or objects, we we are diminishing our worship. Whereas Romans 12 describes, that we are living sacrifices, that we, this is our spiritual act of worship. We we can live it. That's why we use words, we use description like whole life worship, that everywhere you go and everything that you do can be an act of worship. Your job that you do, even if you hate your job, you can still do it excellently for God's glory and he's worshipped in that because he's made you and he's given you good things to put your hand to. All of our interactions can be with one another can be an act of worship to God as we we seek to love and to, to minister in God's name in all the ways that we live our lives. It's a very big and broad thing and God says don't narrow it to physical things. So so that brings us to this. Well, what do we do with icons like this or religious art? Um, or like this. I mean, I have trouble calling that art. But the this... Um, so this is an official icon that somebody gave me as a gift for at the occasion of my ordination. And I keep it in my office. Um, an icon is an image of Jesus or of some you know, saint or famous person. And... People who use these in worship will say when we focus on the image, it draws our mind deeper towards the reality. It's not, we don't worship this, but it helps us focus our worship. Um, helps me, you know, pray, people might say. But in some traditions, they say actually this, because this is a very special image and it's sacred, it gives us a more direct line of our prayer so that. The, those who are in this image receive the prayer maybe quicker or have more of a straight line to heaven, in a sense. And then sometimes in worship, these types of objects are, are kissed or they're bowed down to. At that point, when you say, so we're not worshiping it, we're just venerating a sacred object. It's, there's a, that's a very fine line. Venerating a sacred object and worshiping it. or Seeing it as something greater than it is. So we, so we don't, in our tradition, we, we do not use this kind of thing. We wouldn't recommend it. However, art, religious art, we don't have a problem with. And even this icon as a piece of art is actually fascinating to me. That's why I like it, and that's why I keep it. And that's why I love going to art museums and seeing sacred art, and there's, it helps. Um, you just think about how creative the artist is, and how they thought of the scene from the Bible, and how they got to the to to form it into an image, a depiction. It's like telling a story, and the, their technique and all these things. It, it really a uh, beautiful way to reflect on God and God's Word to produce, you know, art. So icons as art is okay. Art is okay, and admiring it is is okay. Having a picture of Jesus, in some kind of depiction of Jesus in your house, or a depiction of angels, it's not idolatry or idol worship per se. But if you ascribe power to it, oh, this picture of Jesus in our bedroom because it keeps us safe, no, no. That, that painting cannot keep you safe. And actually, at that point, you should take it out. Because you've now ascribed power to it that you respect, but that image has no power. God has the power. Jesus has the power, not the images. And so we would never um, say, so, oh, this thing, I, I carry this because it protects me, or I, I put special things underneath this image of Jesus. We, we just this, That would be crossing the line. It, it becomes an idol at that point. Uh, crosses. So crosses are another symbol that people that help people worship. So there's a cross behind me, and there's that cross behind me on this table. And people like to look at the cross. It reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice, the great gift of giving himself for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. The the empty cross reminds us of his victory and his raising to new life. That's a it's a good symbol. Uh, but when we when we started last Last spring, when we started worshiping just on camera for a, a brief season there. The first week, people couldn't see the cross. And, and some people were upset. They said, why did you take the cross down? I said, I didn't take that cross down. I don't even know how you can take it down or why. Because so, be, that would be very complicated. Um, it seems like work. I don't want to do. But the... But people were, because the angle of, they're used to seeing the cross behind the person preaching, and because of the angle of the camera, you can't see the cross. They thought the cross was gone, and somehow something had gone wrong. Which is fine. I, I, we like the cross. But if you feel that you can't worship without it, then what, what is it? Because worship is spirit. God is spirit, and we worship him. Again, these reminders are good. But when we ascribe value, you know, if you carry a cross as a good luck charm, then that's not good. Bibles are the same way. I have my, um, my, my dad had a, a Bible for years and years. And it was, you know, people have like these kind of weathered and worn Bibles. You say, wow, they really, you know, it's because they use it and because they, they're just so committed to it. No, my dad just left it in his car because it was just that's, he just wanted the Bible in the car. That was important to him. And I think it had some sort of, in his mind, some kind of value that it would protect him as he drives or something. And over time, it became kind of battered and (laughs) torn. We still have it. It's a a good memory. Later, his faith really blossomed later in life. And anyway, I bought him another Bible. But um, we can use that kind of a thing as a a good luck charm. But all those things are much less than God. We want those physical reminders because they're concrete. Because we can see them. We can hold them. We can touch them. But God said, I deserve your worship. Nothing less than me. Nothing carved, nothing fashioned should be worshipped. So God sanctions no images of himself, except one. And scripture says God allows one image of himself. It's people. God created human beings in his image, male and female in the image of God. That God allows that one image. He says, so human life reflects me in a special way. Now, of course, because of sin, that image is distorted and it's broken in many ways. But by faith, God is uh, extending his grace and his healing power to us and restoring that image. So as we go about life and walk his way, we reflect God in a way that certainly this and, and not in any way this could ever do. That people will see God in us. That's why we never put tasks or buildings or objects above people. We always prioritize our relationship to other humans. And whatever you do in your work, whatever you're trying to produce or achieve or your goals in life, that we never harm people on our way to get that. We always value the relationships of, the, of our coworkers and of our families and of, of our neighbors over whatever the achievement or the goal or the possession or the material thing. Any physical thing is less than God. It is therefore an idol if we elevate it. And that's the main reason we don't, you don't make idols. The second second reason that idols keep us from worshiping God fully is that true worshipers worship in truth. God's truth, therefore, is anything less than the full truth of who he is. So just like a physical representation just like a physical representation is very inadequate to describe Jesus. Sometimes the images we make in our minds are fall very short of who God is. And yet we worship or pray or interact to these diminished images of God. That idols aren't just necessarily physical, but in Ezekiel 14 God says these people have set up idols in their hearts. So an image of God that's inadequate or falls short. Things that we believe about God that are not biblical, that are make, they make God more agreeable or they make God a little nicer or less threatening or less powerful. Anything that diminishes his sovereignty is false worship. J.B. Phillips was an Anglican uh, clergy person, and he wrote this book in the 1950s called Your God is Too Small. And he lays out in the whole first half of the book all these two small gods, all these diminished view of gods that somehow we interact with some of us and, and um, or we worship in some way. I want to just introduce you to 12 of them. Say, Pastor, you don't have time for 12 of these. You're probably right. Let's go for it. All right, and I renamed some of these. but here's uh, Number one is the resident policeman. That's just your conscience. So people say, well, I feel... Um, they're just following their conscience, but they call it God. Oh, God wants me to do this, or I feel God wants me to do that. But it's really just your own conscience, which is much, uh, very much conditioned by how you were raised. And it's probably either going to be oversensitive, so you feel guilty all the time, or make you very self-righteous. Um, so, oh, I would never violate my conscience. And Philip says your conscience is a half-blind guide. Um, God does guide his people, and God does lead his people, and God does prompt us, uh, but sometimes we just follow our conscience and sort of call that God. Uh, The second too small God is the parental hangover. This is is our conception of God that's just sort of a view of how our earthly father was, whether he was good or loving or angry or even abusive, that it's just our image of God is just very much tied to our earthly image of father. A third is the old man in the sky, and he always has a beard. He's just kind of up there, and that's the image if people were to draw or picture God in their minds. He said that's a really too small. What happens is if you see God as old, you know, there's wisdom in that, and there's sort of this grandness, but it also puts God as a thing of the past. You know, that's for previous generations. That God can't keep up with our high-tech, you know, modern world. The fourth is the, this meek and mild God. And, and we understand the humility of Jesus Christ, but these you know, pretty pictures and sugary songs about you know, God's niceness really does cheapen the notion of God's love, because God is love. That is true, but God is... His love is powerful, and it's transformative. And, and Jesus, you know, that's probably where this guy falls short, Is God the gymnastics judge? That's where Christianity becomes very performance based, where God is always just deducting, like, oh, your toes were not pointed. Like, oh, little wobble on the beam there. Just if you don't do 100% perfection, that God is just very displeased with you. There's God the heavenly snuggle. This is the God who you escape to like a little child into the parents' arms, you know, just hiding and getting away. And when the world is tough, you just go to that God, and he's just there to, to comfort you. And, and God is our refuge in times of trouble. That Scripture does say that. But God, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary. But he also says, go in my name, that we are sent out in his strength and in his power, not just to escape this world, but to enter into it. There's the God of churchianity, This is um, churches who say, God works through our machinery the way we do church. And we're the one true church. And all the other churches are, you know, we're the only way. So you have to, um, you know, no one group has a monopoly on God's grace. And there are very inadequate expressions of church out there. But to say that you have to be involved in this way of doing it or you're really not connected at all is is too small. Much too small. The eighth is the God uh, manage, managing director. That's way too small. That's the God who's so big. And in a sense, it's a nice view that God is so big. But he's so big, he doesn't really care about little old me. You know, if, if God was taking care of... You think of a, a person who takes care of you know 50 people. You can get to know them. Know what makes them tick. What makes them encouraged and happy. But if you manage 500 people, it would be a lot harder to do. If you manage 5,000 people... It'd be, even if you're benevolent and good towards them, it'd be hard to know the details of their lives. And think about the God of the universe. How possibly could he care, even if he's good? But when you see God that way, a lot of things become insignificant. God says, no, it's all significant. It's all my world. There's a silver screen God. That's representation of God in movies or books. Positive representations of God and also negative representations of God that 's why I hate some of these Christian movies I just they're just ugh. because they just everything kind of works out, and it all just everybody at the end is converted and happy and it's just very um, not real and just too small, even if there's some goodness you know it depicts aspects of God that are good it's too small there's the disappointing deity that's the God who let me down, and every time I think about following him, I remember how he let me down in my life and how he didn't answer my prayer and You'll never worship a disappointment. It's similar to the divine downer. This is a very negative God, a God who's always frowning. Um, you know, people who do not enjoy pleasure or the goodness of life or the, the joy, um, freedom, laughter, the beauty of our world. They look at other Christians and say, "Oh, they are very worldly. But me and my frowny Christianity, worshiping my downer God, you know, this is, this is better. Uh, there's the projected image God. This one's great. This is the God who really values the things you value and is offended by things that offend you. You know, the sins that you think are so disgusting and awful that you don't, you don't struggle with them anyway, your God just hates those things. The political stuff that you're not into, your God hates that political system. But the things you struggle with and your sins, God, you know, he's kind of okay with that. Just a bigger version of you that's way too small. Anyway, so that's it. So, that's, so true, these idols keep us from worshiping the true God. And I don't know if any of that resonated with how you view God, but true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. So it's spiritual, so nothing physical or tangible or material, no objects or art could ever, um, they're all too small. And then false notions of God are also too small because worship is truth. So what do we do? We let the gospel of Jesus Christ work in your heart. If you see any of these idols um, in your heart or in your house, physical or, or mental images, can I remember that Christ died to free me of my sin and to bring me new life, that I can forsake idols and I can worship him fully. He died, so there's no barrier between me and God. I don't need these things to worship him. And also to search our hearts and pray, God, would you, you maybe pray Psalm 139? Search me and know me. Know if there's any offensive way. Allow God to prompt you where these ideas about him that are too small or these things in your life that might just need to get out so that we can truly understand all of who God is, all of his vast attributes and his goodness. Let us pray. Father, we do ask this now. Is whatever you've brought to our, our minds and our hearts, We we do want to see you as you really are. Your holiness, your sovereignty, your greatness, your love and your mercy, your justice, your righteousness, your power, your glory. Increase our capacity to know you and to worship you and to love you and then to love in your name as we go. Be glorified in this, Lord. Be truly worshipped in this. We pray it through the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.